Hello and welcome to Inequality Talks, a podcast from the volunteers of the Economic Equality Group at Mellemfolkelet Samvirke Aarhus. In each episode of Inequality Interviews, we interview experts in a field or topic related to economic equality. I'm Elias. I'm Adam. And uh, with us today is Jakob Bask. Uh, first, a little bit about our guest. He has received his master's education in economies in transition at Schumacher College and now currently is working with Golapenge and Rethinking Economics to, um, how would you say, like to host? Yeah, well, well I'm, I'm sort of the convener of a, an educational program called Ökonomiskolen, which translates to the economy school. It's an evening school uh, about rethinking economics and introducing uh, different uh, ideas about how to think about uh, the economics of the 21st century. Wow, that sounds awesome. Um, so uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about yourself, um, Jakob. I uh, can at least say that I first um, came into contact with you last year at the Cooperative Festival, the first one that we had here at Mellenfolkenlitz uh, Samvirge. Um, and you gave a really uh, perfect presentation about cooperatives and why they can be good for society and the planet. Um, so we thought we have to have you back again and uh, for a podcast episode to talk about cooperatives. So um, you've also written a book called Cooperative Handball, with Helena Reimert-Gerning. Did I say your name right? Yep. Okay, good. Um, about uh, cooperatives here in Denmark. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, your background, your process, and um, a little bit about your book. Yes, I actually got into this uh, subject from a very big uh, round roundabout, a big detour. My first uh, work was in uh, sustainability so I studied environmental science um, as uh, a child who grew up in the 90s I uh, was very worried about environmental problems uh, and being exposed to it on the news and so on and so I thought I want to work uh, with an NGO like uh, Friends of the Earth or Melmfolgi uh, Samvirke maybe that uh, is addressing the, the problems of uh, uh, inequality and uh, social justice and, and environmental uh, concerns and so I studied environmental science and I was um, sort of uh, I was mobilized in uh, especially around the, the UN climate change conference in 2009 COP15 I was part of the protests uh, there to um, include more voices in the negotiations and also to to um, put pressure on the world's leaders to to uh, make real commitments um, and if I don't know if, if you remember but uh, those of uh, were around that was a very uh, traumatic experience because the climate summit in Copenhagen failed to commit to any uh, sort of ambitious climate goals and it was all very uh, vague and also they found out later that uh, for example, the the the, the U.S. had been uh, spying on uh, the other countries like uh, Germany, uh, so they already knew what they were going to say in the negotiations. Uh, that was part of what uh, Edward Snowden found out. So all in all, it, it was a really it was a really um, um, sort of a traumatic experience for a lot of uh, us who had been trying to uh, to make it uh, succeed. And um, so that kind of uh, that what I got out of that as a young twenty uh, something uh, was that if the politicians are not gonna take serious the problem of climate change, then we will just have to do it ourselves. And so uh, that that sort of was what my uh, approach um, and my my learning outcome, if you will, of that event. And so then I got really involved in uh, very local projects around local food. So I was part of setting up Copenhagen's Fødevarefællesskab, uh, which is a local food co-op. I was part of that, uh, along with many others. Uh, it became a real movement here in Copenhagen of uh, hundreds of uh, people um, basically buying vegetables, organic vegetables, uh, collectively and distributing them all throughout the city in these local hubs. 
Um, so that was also, I think, my first experience of a cooperative business. So, um, I, of course, I'd been exposed before. You know, I I grew up in an in an Andelsbolig, a cooperative housing, uh, but I never reflected on what that meant. And uh, so, uh, the food co-op was my first sort of um, exposure to a a cooperative business and being part of something with others uh, owning it together. So um, that's a bit of how I got interested in that. Um, yeah, and then I went on to study economics because it seemed to me that the environmental problems really are are economic problems. They're caused by our economic system, and uh, and so I wanted to understand that. And um, I think I understand some of it, and I'm still learning. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that also led me to this. Uh, to, to the work around democratic ownership um, the idea that we need to change our economic system if, if we want a sustainable um, society so that's a little bit of my background and I've been working as a teacher primarily for the past many years uh, teaching primarily young people but also uh, all ages and doing talks and, and workshops and so on within this field um, yeah and then Last year, we wrote a book on cooperatives, which is a, it's a practical guide on how to set up a democratic business. Um, it's very specific to the Danish uh, context in terms of the le- legal frameworks and and so on. Um, so that's a bit of, of my background and interest. Well, it sounds like a very natural progression. And it it's kind of similar to my journey too, um, kind of starting with environmental activism and then studying economics and realizing how uh, intertwined the economy is with society and our natural environment and uh, realizing how backwards our economic system is and how if we really want to tackle environmental and social problems, we have to study the economy and try to think of alternatives. And it sounds like you've been really busy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think you'll get any disagreement from us in the economic inequality group because that's why we why we <laughs> focus on this because yeah, it's connected to so many issues and and climate activism amongst them. And I also yes, I I was in Greenpeace before this, so, yeah. <laughs> so I've also made that a bit of that transition. Um, and it's is it correct that you you wrote that book about how to set up a cup because you couldn't find any guidance yeah. otherwise in Denmark? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. Um, I was studying in in England, and there I um, had some teachers were were working with the Cooperative UK, and I could see how there was really this uh, very strong support structures and support uh, networks around setting up new uh, cooperatives. And in Denmark, we have an organization called Cooperation, which supported our book. Um, and I just could see a, a big difference in terms of how much support you were getting as like a young um, a young person or entrepreneur wanting to start something. So um, one big issue is that in Denmark, the, the legal framework around cooperatives are quite messy. Um, so in places like uh, Spain and uh, Italy and the UK, you have one cooperative, uh, a legal form. Um, and then that makes it very, quite uh, sort of simple and easy to just register um, but in Denmark, uh, we don't have that. We have several different ones. And also we have many cooperatives that on a legal, um, and you know, you interrupt me if it becomes too technical, but like their legal form is what's called a APS. It's a traditional shareholder company, but they internally are organized democratically. So one of the problems is that that makes it quite hard to, to for example, count how many cooperatives are there because they're not in one form. And the other is that if, if you do want to, uh, if you have a group of uh, colleagues and you want to set up a business, um, very often if you go to like an entrepreneurship um, program or like um, the, the state has these um, support uh, hotlines for entrepreneurs, the kind of counseling you will get is actually not fit for what you want to do on your values you will you will sometimes be sort of uh, counseled to make decisions about the design of your company's decision making and and the ownership which is uh, is quite traditional and doesn't necessarily fit 
what it is you're trying to do. So we we spoke with a lot of people. We we joined this network of cooperatives in in Copenhagen, and we could see that many of them had uh, a lot of issues with the the legalities, and uh, we thought that's a shame you know that that shouldn't be a stumbling block it's it's really difficult to set up a business and uh, and yeah it takes a lot of uh, blood sweat and tears so also having to struggle just with understanding the the legal uh, stuff that that should be uh, easier so we we kind of thought okay there there should be one uh, book that kind of makes it easier to understand and and makes it simple um because it is quite messy Unfortunately, while we were working on the book, it took us a few years because we've done it sort of on the side. Uh, while we've been working on it, there's been a lot more focus uh, on on um, updating the system and and uh, simplifying it. And hopefully, soon we will get some more more sort of clarity. Um, there's a lot of political interest as well in it, so that's been really nice. Sort of working on an area where there's been all this uh, growing interest. Mm. So there'll be plenty of stuff for the next edition. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And hopefully, um, yeah. someday an English translation for those of us who can't speak <laughs> Danish so well. Yeah, I'm. I'm sorry to. I, I think uh, the likelihood is that it's very low because it's so specific to the Danish. Uh, <laughs> yeah, at least the legal part uh, is very specific to sort of Danish law. So um, I don't think there's a lot of hope for that. But then it has some very nice pictures in it, so you can look at those. Well, I was gonna, I was just about to ask you did Did you say last year that you drew the pictures? Actually, uh, yes, yeah, I did that. I mean, they are really nice. Thank you very much. And you okay. can see that they're like hand drawn. Yeah, they. I liked the pictures, <laughs> especially because um, I'm still learning Danish, so <laughs> the more visuals, the better. Okay, well, let's just jump right into our like more technical questions um because first um we should probably talk about okay what is a cooperative um like brass tacks because uh we had this episode about collective ownership where we talked about cooperatives but um we didn't really get so much into the details and maybe some of our listeners haven't uh heard that episode yet so um, if I could just ask you, Jakob, um, if you could maybe talk about what the cooperative model refers to. And I remember in your book, you you mentioned these seven principles for cooperatives, which was very helpful for me to conceptualize uh, the cooperative model. So could you maybe talk a bit about that? Sure. So um, a cooperative is, uh, if we start with the definition, um, it's an association of people united voluntarily to meet their common economic, social, and cultural needs um, through a jointly owned and democratically controlled enterprise. Um, so that's the sort of the definition. And uh, what that means, there's a lot of there's a lot of words in there. So we're gonna kind of unpack that. And one way of doing that is through these seven principles, which is the cooperative principles that the International Cooperative Alliance, uh, all of their members, which uh, consists of millions of people, if you count all the members of the cooperatives, that's part of that. It's it's the principles that that uh, the Cooperative Alliance uh, all over the world is uh, has agreed upon. Um, and they have deep historical roots all the way back to the first uh, cooperative uh, in, in Rochdale in England. Um, and so what does it mean that it's an association? Uh, that's uh, pretty simple. It's people joining together um, and it's membership based. So it's not, uh, uh, it's not a, a hierarchy. It's not uh, one person hiring uh, the rest to um, help him or her uh, realize uh, some, uh, his purpose. It's an association, meaning that they, it's people joining together around a common purpose in this case if it's a business uh, to to create uh, uh, livelihoods and uh, good working conditions uh, or meet an economic need so that's that's the other um, the other thing it, it, there's also the word the word voluntary that means that uh, it it, it kind of grows out of this idea that um when the cooperative movement was born um a lot of uh, a lot of uh, work 
was done involuntarily. So in Denmark, for example, uh, we had just gotten rid of uh, basically a form of slavery, which meant that if you were uh, a man and you were born on a big estate, uh, between your the age of four and 40, you had to work and live on that estate for the landowner, the, um, the local uh, lord. Uh, that was a law in Denmark, and that uh, was the, um, that was um, removed around 1800. Um, so voluntary. <laughs> so today you might think, oh well, most uh, people go to work voluntarily. But but the idea of sort of a voluntary association was very important in the beginning because um, if you look at the history of of uh, work, there's actually been a lot of examples of involuntary. Um, Associations. The other is the, that, like we have with the um, with the labor unions, that uh, you're not forced to be a member; uh, you can choose to. And and I think that's an important principle uh, uh, because otherwise it can become a new form of uh, of re- repression. So and and then the other is is this uh, idea of economic needs, and uh, I think that's for me probably the most important. And interesting bit is this word need and economic need. Um, today, if if you uh, read sort of if you read a, a masters of economics and if you read most modern e- economics, they don't really distinguish much between uh, needs and wants. It's sort of the same thing, and uh, also between uh, something that's valuable and what the price is. So if something is uh, very expensive, then that's uh, described as uh, very valuable. Um, but it's really important to distinguish between what our, our needs are, which are limited uh, and finite. So we need, uh, in, in the book I have this drawing that we need uh, shelter, um, we need food, uh, and we need uh, energy to uh, to do work and uh, keep warm and so on. And we also need care. Uh, I want I want to include that in the next version. I think uh, the pandemic has really showed us how essential care is uh, for a, a good life. And uh, yeah, so, so we need these basic things. Um, and the cooperatives traditionally, and I think still today, primarily are concerned with providing needs for people which are not being met in the existing economic order. So that's, I think, a good a good place to start, definition-wise. Okay, so you touched a little bit um, on this in your definition already, but um, maybe could you give a, um, a specific answer to this question of how cooperatives are still considered alternatives to uh, current mainstream models? Um, and maybe, for example, what makes a cooperative different than... A corporation yeah so um, actually I, fi- I forgot to touch on the last bit of the definition which is maybe the most important it's the about the uh, that it's democratically owned and run and and so that that answers your question because you could say that um, a business like uh, let's say uh, McDonald's is meeting uh, the customers need for food you could you know, say that you can. Uh, you, there are some people who uh, eat a lot of McDonald's, and it meets their need for food. So, how is that different? Um, and that is very much in terms of the ownership structure. So, um, you have consumer co-ops, which are um, things like um, the Danish company Co-op, uh, which is the grew out of the Andelsbevægelse, um, the, the rule cooperative movement, uh, so cooperative shops and uh, providing people with uh, with sort of uh, essentials and their daily needs for, for milk and bread and uh, so on. And then you have producer cooperatives, which are where the producers of a good, so for example, dairy farmers collectively um, set up a dairy so they send their milk to the dairy factory, which they own collectively, or it could be Danish Crown, for example, which is is making Danish bacon. It's one of the biggest uh, co-ops in Europe, and it 
it's uh, you know making pigs for slaughter so that's a producer cooperative so that that means that in in the slaughter houses of Danish crown the workers there they don't have any democratic say over over their job or pay and so on it's the producers so it's the pig farmers uh, so that's a distinct uh, distinction and then you have the kinds of co-ops that the book is about which is worker co-ops um where the people who work at the company they uh, own it so they get the um, the profits and they collectively and democratically decide the direction and uh, and they hire the management if they need management and so on uh, so those are kind of t- three different uh, types and um and they the, the main difference between that and a and a more kind of traditional company is in terms of uh, these two you could say rights so you can think of a company uh, any company as consisting of uh, of basically two kinds of rights one is uh, voting rights so who decides what the company is producing and how how much um and also sort of strategic questions where where do we want to be in 5 10 years so that's the voting rights and then there's the economic rights so who gets the surplus the benefits the profits um if the company makes a profit and in traditional companies both of those rights are in the owners in the so in if it's a small company typically it's like uh, one or two people who who are the founders and that's a private company and if it's a public uh, company meaning that you can trade it on a stock exchange then the owners might be uh, thousands of people around the world who who get profits and in a cooperative then if it's a worker cooperative both the economic and the voting rights are shared between the workers it can there's also a form which you could call co- collective ownership where the decisions the voting rights are the workers but the profits are reinvested into like a trust or um some other um, yeah um, body uh, which then has a, a social purpose or environmental purpose um, yeah so so there's many different uh, forms and and ways to kind of design design that but that's the basic dif- differences around ownership that's the key difference mm. so i guess uh, um related to that you know, this is a podcast called Inequality Talks. Melanfoglia Sandberger is very involved with, with fighting inequality. I'd want to ask, you know, how can this democratic ownership, how can these kind of different forms of ownership that are, that seem fundamental to cooperatives kind of be put into practice? And, and how can they help with, with changing unequal power structures or, or tackling inequalities? Yeah. Yeah, so I think um, if if I may, a good way of that, answering that is look looking back at the history of where the idea came from um yeah, i'm 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 going to try and be brief <laughs> because you know it's a very long and fascinating uh, history and i'm i'm a, a bit of a history nerd but i'll i'll try and make it brief so uh, the ideas around cooperatives can be traced all the ra- all the way back to the the 1700s um, people like robert owen uh, who's one of the the founders of the ideas of socialism uh, in england and their ideas inspired these um 28 weavers in Rochdale's in the north of England who founded the first uh, cooperative shop it was it's called the Rochdale uh, Society of Equitable Pioneers and that was in 1844 and so what they why they did it was that simply they couldn't afford the products that they needed uh, to meet their their basic economics needs and they joined together and founded this shop and so that inspired uh, the workers uh, here in Denmark and especially rural workers and uh, 22 years later in in 1866 there was a there was a shop set up along similar principles in Tistel which is in uh, the north of Jutland northwest Denmark Uh, by a, a priest called Hans Christian Sonne and he was inspired by uh, the English uh, example in Rochdale and and by socialist ideas and his idea was basically that uh, this majority of the population whose economic needs uh, needs were not met 
uh, needed to uh, organize in cooperatives in order to uh, to pull themselves out of poverty. And I think in Denmark there's this uh, funny uh, myth that we sort of invented the cooperative model. Um, uh, that's something you really often hear, and it's simply not true. It's very clear if you look at the the history that they were very inspired by the the English uh, models, but. But what is true is that it really took off in a way here in Denmark that uh, has shaped the entire country. And and that now I'm going to get to answering your question. And the reason is that in, in Denmark, we had um, we had a structure in our agriculture where, like most of the world back then, and still in many places, there was this huge inequality uh, where um, a few people owned like 20% of the agricultural land was owned by like a, a few lords on these really, really big estates. But their power had been um, weakened and their ability to kind of extract wealth f- uh, from the peasants had been weakened by these reforms that I mentioned. But the peasants had still had a problem because they were producing milk on these uh, independent uh, small fa- smallhold farms, uh, but they didn't have a way to process the milk. So the, what they would usually do is they would uh, deliver the milk to these uh, lords uh, at their estates and they would get a little bit of money for that milk. But um, that's sort of the, the same problem that you see today in many um, African countries. Uh, for example, why is it so difficult to for uh, economies in the global south to pull themselves out of uh, poverty? Well, one of the reasons is that they sort of become these um, suppliers of uh, primary pro- products. So uh, um, they, you know, you'll have mining or you'll have uh, these industries which just deliver the raw product. But then the companies who process it and uh, who turn it uh, into the end product, making it more valuable, are the ones that reap the benefits. And that was the problem that the farmers in Denmark had was they weren't really getting the benefits of the value of what they were creating by just selling the milk to the landowners. And so that's why the the cooperative model was so attractive because every small farmer couldn't afford to set up their own dairy at at the farm. But if they joined together, they they could sort of uh, capture the value of that uh, of turning the the milk into butter and later on turning the the pork into bacon and what that meant was that it completely changed the the economic structure of this country and it took away the power of these uh, lords to a point where today it, it's almost non-existing um the two big political parties we have in Denmark is Venstre and the social democrats and Venstre is it means the left it can be confusing if you're not from here and the reason for that is that they they were these uh, it grew out of these cooperatives um, independent farmers who uh, were seen as very radical and and left wing by the aristocracy the lords the the big landowners and uh, <laughs> Yeah, you can see by the by the, the scale of the party that how they completely won that battle. And today we have sort of two uh, big parties that are both grew, grew out of this struggle. So um, so so basically, my answer would be that the way cooperatives can address inequality is is by capturing the value of the work and uh, redistributing it directly through the ownership and through the the shared profits. And you could say that 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 in Denmark that's been hugely successful in terms of making Denmark one of the least uh, unequal societies on earth, or you could say we're we're one of the most equal societies on earth uh, in a huge deal because of of the cooperative uh, model. Um, But the other part of the story is this uh, idea of social democracy, which basically where you tax the profits and then redistribute it afterwards that's the other way of solving the inequality problem right you you um and and that's we've we've had we've also done that quite successfully um and the basic sort of deal is that the state says to the companies okay we will allow you to own the you know <laughs> the means of production 
but then we will tax the your profits and then we will redistribute that and that works quite well in places like uh, Scandinavia uh, we still have a, a functioning welfare state but it's been under attack now for 25 years or more um, because with globalization more and more companies are able to kind of hide their profits in, in um, tax havens and to move around making it harder and harder for the welfare model and also um, the companies can say well if you hire your taxes and redistribute it will just move to somewhere else so this model has really been challenged as a way of creating equality and that's especially a problem for sort of uh, countries where which uh, is upcoming and where they don't have uh, like a, a hundred year head start in creating these kinds of economies they they're really struggling with all of the if they want to attract economic development from big companies then they basically have to accept that th this is the name of the game and these are the rules. And so I think this is the most important reason why why uh, cooperatives are important today is that they are solving a problem which basically we've had for the past 200 years, which is how do you uh, make sure that, that the wealth that's created from the business uh, activity is redistributed into the community uh, and, and stays within the the community and the hands of the people who created it. Yeah, and I guess another downfall of having um, like states taxing companies' profit and then redistributing it after the fact is that workers, which is basically everyone, <laughs> is dependent on companies for their livelihoods. And that's another big problem with uh, workers not owning the means of production because they're so um, reliant on companies that prioritize profit over people. So it's a very insecure uh, setup. Yeah, so it's a, it's a lot more insecure if your livelihood is dependent on your, um, your, your salary is dependent on uh, decisions that are outside of your control. Um, and we've seen that, you know, in this pandemic, um, how um in the you know in in the cooperatives uh, generally have had less layoffs um of workers um because they've been able to uh, decide to sort of restructure or maybe lower their salaries before they start to layoffs and so on so one of the things i describe in the book is how cooperatives are more more resilient this idea of uh, or you could say robust um they're able to bounce back uh, when there is a financial shock or um, a pandemic. They're much more able to adapt. Um, and I think well, there's, there's different reasons for that. But the main reason is that they, because they are owned by the, the workers, um, their main goal and, and purpose in the way that they're put together and designed is to create good livelihoods for people. Whereas uh, a, a shareholder company's main purpose is to create value for shareholders. And so um, basically they're, they're two different animals and their whole purpose um, is different. And so that really shows clearly in, in a crisis. So because sort of it's, it's a lot of people who are locally rooted and it's about their day-to-day -day lives, they're more invested in benefiting locally and it's not the power is not concentrated in one person who can make a decision about all of their lives because everyone gets a say in their decisions about this thing that is very important for them. exactly yeah um so we've talked about the two different models uh the sort of more traditional or what we would now consider more traditional um shareholder model with ceos and big corporations um obviously you know we were just talking about this before you know, CEO comp compensation is extremely high. Um, apparently, there's an average ratio of 278 to 1, which means that if every worker earns $100, the CEO earns $27,000. Um, obviously, this is a thing that you, we're talking about. This would be much more difficult to happen, this kind of inequality in, in a cooperative. Um, but, but given that there's so much that there is this already existent inequality, how can we push for cooperatives or how can we move towards a cooperative model um, when there is already so many sort of structures in place, economic structures in place that benefit 
few people. Um, yeah. Sort of, in, in other words, how can we be more democratic if if democracy is all already in trouble? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I mean that's a big one. Uh, I'm gonna, I'll try and answer as best as I can, but uh, that is the million dollar question, isn't it? When I was looking into this idea around uh, co-ops, I also read up on the history of sort of the the idea of uh, democracy. And uh, one of the oldest texts or the the works around uh, politics and uh, economics is uh, Aristotle. He wrote a a work called Politica, and he's describing his idea of a good society, which uh, it's something like the welfare state. So there's no poverty uh, there's a very small difference between rich and poor. Uh, everyone's taken care of and so on. And he is uh, thinking about this in, in terms of this perfect democracy. And he's saying in a perfect democracy, if there is a huge economic inequality developing, then the poor will use their power to redistribute, redistribute this wealth by taking away the property of the rich. Exactly like what you were saying. So... Uh, Let's say that this company where the CEO is earning uh, 278 more uh, times more than the worker, I think was the number you gave. What if that became a co-op tomorrow? Uh, then obviously the workers would vote <laughs> to uh, lessen that and to get a bigger uh, part of the profits. And Aristotle said, well, that's unfair uh, because... Uh, yeah, well, he he didn't like this idea of sort of taking property away. He was talking about mostly land and, and so on. But uh, he says, so basically that means then that there are two, two possible solutions to this problem. Uh, and one is to eliminate poverty and the other is to eliminate democracy. And I think this is a... This is sort of a key insight, which is basically the tension of democracy that runs throughout uh, history all the way until today, uh, is this exact tension. And in different uh, periods, um, the pendulum has sort of swung more towards one uh, and and the other. And what we've seen, I would argue, in the past uh, 30, 40 years, and especially with the rise of, of uh, neoliberalism, is... The, what you're describing, you know, it's a hollowing out of democracy and it's a, it's a concentration of power in uh, the hands of uh, a few very, very big and influential uh, corporations uh, which are then able to uh, have a, a disproportionate impact on, on decision-making in society. So I think the, the sort of simple answer, which is not easy in practice, is, is to... Uh, eliminate poverty and to uh, you could say strengthen democracy that's a very big and uh, breath it's sort of breathtaking uh, answer so the very practical down-to-earth answer to that question is that the, i think the really fascinating thing about cooperatives is that you don't have to wait uh, until sort of after big uh, political movements and reforms you can start today so it's this idea of creating the kind of society you want within the shell of the old within the already existing and you can already do it so for example one of the companies we have in our book is Lukik a company it's a construction company here in uh, in uh, Copenhagen and they basically said that you know they were a couple of carpenters and uh, yeah, builders and they wanted to create a company where they could already have the kind of uh, society that they want today. So they're, they're very clear about that, that the reason they created the company as a core was they didn't want to wait. They wanted to, to have sort of equality today. I suppose that's also quite appealing in the sense that it, as opposed to a lot of other kinds of political action, even if it doesn't succeed in a large transformation, it's still a really nice thing to have. Yeah, exactly. And I think for me as, as well, that's been a big uh, a big insight uh, and, and sort of uh, a reason why I have become more and more interested in it is that if I sort of look back at my own uh, life and involvement with social movements, a big uh, radicalizing event in my life was the wars, um, the, the wars in Iraq and I- Afghanistan, where you had this um, strange 
dilemma that on the one hand most of the population was actually uh, opposed to it and that is always the same in the United States and in England and but somehow um, they still went through with it and they were able to go against the will of the population and that sort of made me think about so what how exactly uh, does uh, power work in a in a society and for me it made me realize that because we are so dependent on uh, the way that the present system works with uh, cheap fossil fuels uh, and uh, the the kind of uh, economic system where most people are simply forced to take a, a job in a kind of company which is not democratic, then actually we're, we're really dependent on the status quo for our survival. And then that makes it quite hard to protest uh, over time because you're completely dependent on the system that you're trying to uh, change or critique. And I think that's uh, something that we, we all, if we're looking at social change, we should really think about how to build uh, independence and you could say self-sufficiency, build strong economic support systems uh, outside of the thing that we're critiquing or wanting to change. Maybe this is a tangent, but yeah, it's just a thought I had right now. Glad we could join you on the journey. Independence (laughs) through cooperation is a nice slogan. And I was also thinking that um, I think this is one of the problems about, well, people can often come with criticism and say, okay, well, that's not going to change the world if you have, I don't know, universal basic income because we'll still have this and this and that. And it's always going to be a criticism that, Maybe you have this alternative, but you can't scale it up on a macroeconomic scale or we have we don't know the effectiveness of this kind of mode of uh, doing business or this alternative. And and I think it's a really um, like it's an easy criticism, but it's also very useless because ultimately what what we want to do is change the paradigm. And right now our whole system is um, is not working for us. And like you said, we can't just wait around for massive structural change, although we need to fight for structural change, but it's also about changing a culture and changing a worldview. Um, and I think that's one thing that draws me to cooperatives is that it shows that there are alternative ways of organizing society um, that are worth looking into and worth starting and um, successful examples that you have proven in your book. Yeah, and I think uh, if one, one way of responding to that, um, to that critique of cooperatives is to point to things like um, in Denmark, we have a be- very big um, uh, cooperative uh, pension sector and democratic uh, sort of um, pension funds um, also uh, banks, there's things like uh, Mercur and many, many other sort of local cooperative banks and uh, community banks. And there's a lot of cooperatives which not doesn't necessarily sort of uh, spend a lot of energy and time on, on uh, uh, shouting out, uh, ah, this is what we're doing, we're, we're um, yeah. creating uh, e- equality and so on. But if you look at what actually they're achieving, that is what it, it's doing and uh, it's a very, very big and essential part of the um, of our society. So it's not like some radical new idea. Actually, it's the foundation which allowed uh, countries like Denmark to um, to become one of the most equal and uh, attractive places uh, for a lot of people to live. That's not only because of uh, hundreds of years of uh, colonial history and uh, exploitation and extraction because if you look at at uh, Denmark for example actually we don't really have a lot of uh, we don't have a lot of natural resources um we we have our soils which are really rich and then we have some oil and so on but a lot of the the sort of uh, the profits uh, in danish companies are from sort of um very high skill, high knowledge uh, kinds of enterprises, and they were they they grew out of this very social and cooperative uh, way of of doing business. Um, so it's actually quite it's quite impressive 
the, the amount of economic equality that's been able to be created from the kind of natural resources that's available. Um, so I think that that's another way of talking about it is looking back and saying, ah, it's everywhere and it's what we're standing on. And really it's it's something that we've only been moving away from for for a couple of uh, decades now towards this very individualistic way of, of looking at uh, economics. Uh, and it's clear that that's not working. It's clear that that's, uh, that's a story that's in crisis. I've always wondered that about Denmark. So we've talked a lot about the benefits of the cooperative model, but I think it'd be really interesting to talk about maybe the downsides to uh, cooperatives or at least things to look out for. So what I had in my mind was, is there any danger that a cooperative would grow so big or undergo some kind of uh, major changes that it would eventually morph into kind of morph into something that looks a little bit more like um, the mainstream models we have today yeah i think i think this is a really interesting question so there's so many examples you could look at uh, which is really it's really fascinating to to think about really i think what we're talking about is sort of thinking of a business as a design so it's like a institutional design maybe you could call it how do you create uh, a enterprise and uh, so one example i could give is something that uh, personally resonates with me is is um, when we started copenhagen food co-op there it was quite hard to get uh, affordable organic vegetables it was still in this phase where organic uh, vegetables was quite expensive and it was seen as sort of like a luxury and um my issue with that was that it I, w- I was feeling that if it really was to become uh, the new mainstream um it should be affordable it should be the obvious choice um and it shouldn't be like kind of an elitist thing so th- that's the reason that we created uh, the cooperative in the way that we did on the other hand we o- we also wanted to pay the farmers well um because that was the other purpose was that we could see a lot of the people in the organic agriculture, well, in agriculture in general, uh, now especially in vegetables, where it's really hard to make a living from from uh, growing vegetables in Denmark. You really have to be skillful and good at the business side of things. Uh, so we also wanted to pay them more than, for example, they could get in uh, the traditional supermarkets. Uh, one of which is Co-op, which is a cooperative. A consumer-owned supermarket chain, one of the biggest uh, supermarkets uh, in Denmark, and uh, one of the biggest companies actually in Denmark. And so I thought it was this. It was. It's an interesting um, sort of conundrum that you have these independent farmers who want to grow vegetables in a way that's more sustainable and, and regenerative and good for the soil. And then when they interact with the uh, supermarket with co-op which supposedly is about, you know, uh, dem- democracy and uh, inclusion and so on, they basically are treated the same as everyone else. And so they don't, the farmers don't really see a, such a big difference between dealing with uh, co-op and uh, Netto, for example, which is a, a privately owned uh, supermarket. They, they they sort of see it as potato, potato. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. And that's because... Co-op primarily is uh, set up as a cooperative which should serve its members, not necessarily its uh, its producers. So you 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 see how the way that you uh, sort of design and you create the ownership, who is stakeholders in this company? That's really really important uh, when the company grows to a size like the company uh, Co-op. Then you really you you really get to see sort of how those early decisions scale up. Then that created the need for something else that created the need for this local food co-op where we actually paid them more than they would get otherwise because that was one of the purposes of it. I would say there's hundreds of examples of that. We haven't mentioned yet um, the world's biggest cooperative, which is Mondragon in the Basque region of Spain. Uh, It started in the 1950s and it has more than 80,000 employees. And... um, and it's been quite stable in economic crises, but it's not been sort of um, completely 
isolated from the effects, of course, because also it's it's very much industrial production, and so they're quite sensitive to sort of global markets. Uh, and one of the critiques that we've seen of Mondragon is that more and more over the past decades, they have begun using sort of um, labor which is outside of the cooperative, which is uh, especially when they created the companies outside of Spain. They basically sort of develop by setting up new um, production facilities where some of the workers are members and then some of them are not. And if there's an economic problem, then the, you know, the contract laborers are laid off first. So you get this sort of in-group and out-group dynamic where you sort of reproduce many of the issues that we see at large in, in, in our economy. So that... There's, I think the one way of thinking about it is just that if you're trying to create this new system within the shell of the old, you're when as you scale up, you're going to encounter the same kinds of uh, of issues that you get, um, and it's really important to think about how you design, uh, especially from the outset, how how are you going to respond to those kinds of challenges? Um, I, I guess. To, to, to just build on that slightly then, how might we scale up the idea of cooperatives and, and make them operate on a broader level so that they could work together? So you could have farmer cooperatives working with consumer cooperatives, especially if there's some, you, you know, you've mentioned um, that, that a green transition will require creating huge numbers of democratic cooperatives. Um, so how, how might that operate together? Do you think that they should operate purely on market principles or is there some broader federative cooperative principle you could oh. apply there are any pitfalls there? So the reason that I came to that conclusion, which I actually didn't have when I started writing the, the book, I, I wasn't. Uh, I had more questions than, than answers. And the reasons I, I came to that conclusion is that I kept asking this question, wh- why is it that the bigger and profitable the company becomes, the less good <laughs> it is? Why is that? Like, what's this dynamic that you can see happening over and over again globally uh, and as well with big tech companies like Google and Facebook and so on? What is the sort of driving forces that is creating this behavior? And and one of, I think, one of the main reasons is this idea that uh, if you have these thousands of shareholders which are geographically spread out and uh, politically might be all over the place, um, the only thing you can really agree on as a common purpose or goal is profits. That's the only thing binding you together. And that's why the company starts behaving in that way and focusing um, exclusively on that. And so that's I, I think that's the simplest way of putting it. And so the idea would be to to have sort of like a really broad mix of, for example, uh, banks. I don't think banks would be, uh, should be worker-owned. I think that that would probably be an example of where I wouldn't recommend worker ownership because uh, I think it's re- we've seen that it's a very good uh, model to have these community banks and uh, customer banks because they should serve the community. They should, banks is such an important and powerful uh, force in society that if um, if you sort of uh, simply uh, served the workers that, that you know you can imagine kind of going down and asking for a loan and then it's like the workers decide what should your rate be that's not a very attractive model so I, so that's one example but so I think what you really need to look at is in every case like um, What's the need that uh, is not being met by the present system, and how could you better serve that by having the the people who who is need is not being met at the table as stakeholders as, as partners? And in some areas that will that w- will be a worker co-op. In some areas that will be like a mix between local community ownership and uh, and workers and. Uh, and in some areas that will be consumers. And so how I envision it uh, is sort of as a, a mix between all these different models. But the main idea is that um, the people who are affected by the decisions and uh, uh, should should be uh, heard. So you quick, you can imagine sort of different layers or scales of ownership and engagement. I'm, I'm, I'm also wondering how cooperatives might cooperate, so to speak. So because you might have something like a, a community bank 
Um, and as you say, yes, the people most affected by it should be the ones who have a say in how it operates. But could there be conflicts between cooperatives and how should they be mediated? If, if there's different, you know, if we're talking about a much larger scale, um, you're going to have all whose cooperatives doing one thing and, you know, more mm. local regional ones. How do you avoid kind of replicating those? Or is there a way through cooperative principles or should it just be market based mm. to avoid replicating those inequalities of location, for instance, so that the, the yeah. all cooperatives, they really work together or certain industries really work together, but they do so to the detriment of the people in the other cooperatives. Yeah, I mean, that's really, that's a hard one, I think, because what I said earlier, the strength of the cooperative model is that you can create it basically on market, uh, in, in a market uh, economy and on market principles, and you can compete. And that's that's the strength, because that means that you can create one today. The The flip side of that is that you are, also operating on, on this in this very competitive uh, situation where you really have to be quite uh, quite ruthless in order to survive um, I've, I asked this question from many of the businesses that we interviewed for our book and the way that they respond is that uh, often it will be for example a very practical issue is a construction company that started in Copenhagen uh, but it becomes more successfully should they expand to the rest of Denmark and maybe then take uh, work from other local smaller uh, like carpenters and so on in those areas and there uh, they, they've said well they've actually sort of divided up you know they've just made an agreement okay um, this is our area where we're working and then there's another uh, cooperative construction company which uh, does sort of uh, sustainable um, construction which works in the rest of the region and the reason they can do that is because they don't necessarily have an incentive to keep on growing forever because if the, the, what the only sort of benefit that would have was just to hire more uh, builders to um, take in more orders so, so there's not this uh, necessarily this pressure to become the the one big uh, it's much more this idea of the networks um, and appropriate scale, appropriate size. So I would say that it's not, in practice, it's not that big of an issue, this idea of sort of out-competing uh, your competitors because there's simply not as big of a benefit. You know, who who would be making those decisions or to just keep growing and scaling up to become like the big one? Um that because there's not as big a benefit to any one individual of pursuing that strategy um yeah so so it's not in practice i think that issue is not really a big uh, problem i'm more concerned about the what we've seen is some of the big especially in the in the us some of the big co-ops have sort of demutualized they've they have um it's something called ownership employee uh, share shareholder uh, ownership shareholder ownership project uh, employee shareholder ownership programs is what it's called ESOPs, um, and where the workers who were in these shareholder programs they have decided well well, well the management has decided to sell uh, the company and then sort of cash in if you will. So all of these savings in these ownership shares that have been paid out to the workers who are presently employed, but then the next generation of workers will not uh, will not have the same benefits. So it's sort of been been uh, hollowed out, and I think that's a that's a problem that we've seen a lot is that as soon as something comes really big and successful, there is always this risk of it being sort of bought out and then uh, swallowed or yeah um, de democratized um, and that that's an issue that I know that a lot of the big uh, the big uh, American uh, cooperatives are, are very concerned with and I also have found some quite good solutions to um, to ensure that that can't happen uh, in the future I guess it would also need to happen in congruence with kind of a de-scaling of the power that multinational corporations have you know Setting up democratic uh, enterprises is is one strategy, but it's not like a standalone or a silver bullet. And of course, you you will still need um, 
more sort of traditional uh, political activism and uh, engagement and um, things like in the EU you would have regulation around uh, regulating the big uh, corporations so they can't uh, create tax havens and all of this is sort of really important and what what I see happening is that the in Denmark more and more the the cooperative model is sort of being rediscovered uh, and then Hopefully that will raise awareness also politically and then uh, reignite this uh, this interest in how can the the government support more of this kind of development where, that has all of these uh, benefits um, because more and more they're seeing that, that uh, the present model is not really working. Uh, yeah, of course you also need on a structural and political level, you, you need to look at how are you supporting this development but i think the main problem today is simply that it's uh, it can be harder to set up uh, something that's democratically owned simply because there's not as much support structures um you can if like if you turn on the tv you can find a television program like uh, dragon's den and you can see how how that model sort of that's really that that's i think if you use the word entrepreneurship that's what's at most people's minds Uh, at the tip of their tongue that's what they're thinking of thinking about um so i think we just need to have this cooperative entrepreneurship uh, uh, have the awareness about that uh, as big and as accessible and as obvious and i think that could also attract a, a different kind of entrepreneur a different kind of uh, yeah sort of mindset <laughs> to to that field and um, on a positive note yeah yeah Uh, uh well here's a positive note because um just based off of what you just said um it could be a good time to plug that we have the cooperative festival in May uh it will be May 20th to the 22nd so for those of uh you listeners who are interested in starting your own cooperative this will be sort of a a um like a a stepping point for uh getting all the practical information you need to start your own cooperative um so yeah we've talked a lot about the benefits of cooperatives and how they can transform our societies and so i i i think adam would you say that this has been um more of a positive episode than the other episodes some of them, some of them can be a bit uh you know doom and gloom yeah um but we could we end on the on the sort of utopian question of you know okay in the ideal scenario or what would you like to see the changes that would be necessary for a more cooperative more green transition society all right yeah um so the way i see it we need to move from a dynamic which is a 20th century dynamic which is a extractive and degenerative take make waste economy uh, centralizing power and uh, wealth on the hands of a few we need to move from that system to a regenerative and distributive system and there's already lots of uh, companies and uh, entrepreneurs uh, working in this way all over the place uh, and if this succeeds and if we get more of these I think it's a really fascinating and a, quite frankly exciting period to be alive and especially be a young person because on the one hand yes we do have these very very uh, dark times ahead with the environmental problems and climate change but on the other hand it's it's just becoming really clear that the present system is not working and I think as a young person what you want to be doing is you want to make the world your own you you want to be part of shaping the future and it's just really clear to me that today uh, that's what's needed and we'll just have to to change because the present system is really not serving the majority of the people worldwide and so it's also really exciting to be living in this time where, where we were having to create this new completely new Uh, way of of working and so if let's say in 50 years we have made this successful green transition to a more democratic and sustainable economy what i sort of uh, imagine see is that you have lots more like hundreds of smaller uh, more locally embedded businesses 
um, serving their, primarily their local communities. And then, of course, there will be um, things like uh, certain technologies and, and that will requires more large-scale production. But then those companies um, will have representatives uh, of workers. It will have representatives of the uh, communities that they're embedded in, having parts of say in the decisions that's made. Um, yeah, that's sort of my uh, that, that's my idea of uh, of where we are headed. It sounds uh, great. I, I love the sound of it. Um, but I think uh, I think we'll let you get back to your family then. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much, Jacob, for coming, um, and thank you for for all of your insight and for all of your answers. Um, is there any any last things you want to say? Um, no, just uh, the people should uh, join your festival at Menfolie Sambia again. Always, I think it's going to be a great event, and I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you again to Jakob for coming and answering all of our questions and for all his interesting insight. If anyone wants to find his book, uh, you can search for it online. Honbo. Um, as for us, we've got the cooperative festival coming up in the not-too-distant future. Again, details will be in the liner notes. Here in Melenfolglisambige Aarhus, we've got a lot going on. Melenfolglisambige is a Danish NGO working for a more just and sustainable world. And here in Aarhus alone, we have over 100 volunteers working in a not-for-profit cafe and doing all kinds of cool events and campaigning and activities. Uh, you can come down to Café Melenfolg every day but Sunday for a cozy drink, some lovely food, or to get involved. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about Café Millenfolk, Millenfolk de Sambiga and Millenfolk de Sambiga Aarhus, you can look at the links that are in the notes. Check out Podbean, YouTube and other podcast providers for more episodes of Inequality Talks and listen to more in the future. Thank you everyone for listening and until next time, goodbye.